0: Good afternoon, this is Common Ground Radio, an hour of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association and in conjunction with WERU. My name is CJ Walk, my pronouns are he, him, and I am your host for today's show. For today's show, we have a recording from OFCA's Farmer to Farmer Conference back in 2012. This is the keynote address from the conference where Mofka's longtime executive director, Russell Libby, gave an overview of his vision for Maine Organic Agriculture, looking at the history of Mofka from where it started, how it progressed over the years, and looking toward the future. About a month after this keynote address, Russell passed away after a long battle with cancer. I'm happy that we can bring you this recording from the MOFGA archives for our show today. The recording begins with Eric Seidman, Mofka's current organic crop specialist emeritus, but long-time crop specialist, and since this is a recording, we are not taking any calls on today's show. Thank you.
1: I remember the days when I first started working for Mothgut. We were in an office in in Augusta. uh, We we called it a walk-up. There was an elevator, but it hardly ever worked. It was a fourth-floor walk-up, and we were up on the fourth floor. I loved it there, and I used to complain all the time when we moved out to Unity that we should have stayed there. Um, Jason Kafka says it's because I like the sound of water, we were right on the Kennebec River, but that's not what he was referring to. Every time it rained, we'd have to put 20 or 25 buckets around to catch all the water and that came through the roof. And I still liked it there. Um, some people had a vision that things could be, be better. And, uh, they, they had a vision that we could get our own site, maybe a place that didn't have a leaky roof. Maybe MAFCA could grow, uh, get more certified farmers than the 14 we had, (laughs) maybe get more than four staff members, have a full-time secretary perhaps. So some people had a vision, and uh, I didn't. I'm a person who doesn't like change. I never wanted to move after we moved. I used to complain all the time. I would say, I wish we were back in Augusta. (laughs) <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thanks, <Abby. laughs> Well, Russell limited
1: that. He told me that I can complain only once a day when I was out in Unity, and, and so he put a caution on that, and I did. I listened to him because he was my boss. <laughs> He's been a great boss. Um, I want to introduce somebody who had a much better vision for Mafka and made it bigger and stronger than what it is today. And he has a much better bigger vision for agriculture and the state and the country and I think that's what he's going to talk about today so I hope you all enjoy Russell Libby
3: so I'm sitting for a variety of reasons and and one of them is that I have a pinched nerve in my back right now that shoots pain down my leg so if I go like this Means I'll be back with you in just a minute after that stops uh, firing away. And Becky, I'm wondering if Eric told you that he doesn't like change before. Yeah. Be he was crystal clear about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you were coming into it with your eyes wide open, because I think that would be a, a, a mild understatement of Eric's approach to life. <laughs> I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that. Um, and he's done a lot of this as and that, and so it adds up over a stretch of time. So I think most of you know that I'm, uh, as of a week ago Friday, I'm no longer the executive director. I um, stepped to the side to be, um, what am I? I Senior policy advisor. Senior policy advisor. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Emit from Vermont, for for keeping me on track here. uh, In in many ways, I'm gonna be doing some of the same things that I've been doing, which is thinking about how LAFCA fits into the bigger picture, how we can um, have an influence, what do we need to do, what are the possibilities in front of us, Um, but I'm not driving to Unity three, four, five, six days a week like I did for for, uh, many years. And when Eric talks about that larger vision, there are so many people who carried it and drove it. Bill Whitman, way back. Alice Percy, who's the one who went looking at site after site after site, and many others in this room who I'm not going to pick out tonight. I wanted to talk for maybe um, 20, 25 minutes, just where we are, what's ahead of us, what we can do to make a difference, and it operates at so many levels that I think there's a place for each of us. You know, we don't all have to do the same thing, we don't all have to have the same kind of farm, we don't all have to think uh, or agree on every issue, but in front of us there are really some possibilities that are, that are huge. The food system that we've been running under for the last, Oh, call it 40 years—really longer—is anything from anywhere, anytime. And you think about it: you go in the supermarket; it's the same food, it's the same kind of shelf layout, it's the same um, companies who basically control what's going on. The only dynamic is who owns the companies at any given moment, and the. Uh, the amazing appearance of Walmart in the food world, where I believe at this point they're over a quarter of the total food sales in the United States are through Walmart. So just put your head around that, um, which means that when you're supporting people through um, food food stamps, um, the SNAP benefits. Over a quarter of the SNAP benefits in the country go through Walmart also. And if we really wanna make a dent in how people eat, we're gonna to have to crack that at some point. We're gonna to have to figure out what is the alternative, how do we build it, how do we make it grow. The, the scale that's required of that kind of approach is so big. So um, under most recent President Bush, um, it seems like we're setting up dynasties you know, of different families. So most recent Bush, Bush two in terms of the presidential dynasty here. Um, Tom Dor was his undersecretary for rural development, and, and his strong belief was that the farm of the future was two hundred fifty thousand acres under one operation. Uh, it's going to take 250,000 acres to be a viable farm business, to be competitive, to be able to supply these big markets. And when you think about that, in Maine right now, that would be one potato farm, one dairy farm, and the blueberries and other stuff kind of off to the side. So yeah, maybe five farms. Fewer than that in terms of acres, but just in terms of our geography and what's going on. And I don't think that's the vision that we've all been working towards all these years. Um, It's not the vision that I have. I don't think it's the vision that any of you have for the future. And if we're going to do something other than the Tom Doerr, Earl Butts, you name it, year after year we get variations on it, we're going to have to build it. Because nobody's out there saying, hey, rah-rah, let's go build a network widely distributed of tens of thousands of farms across Maine and New England. It's up to us to do it, because nobody else is going to be the advocate for that. It's also 50 years this year since Rachel Carson um, did release Silent Spring. If anything, we've regressed in the last 20 years. Um, We have great IPM programs for vegetables, for small fruit, but we've really intensified agriculture for the grain crops, which for many years were not at all um, part of this spraying regime. And now, between GMOs and the ramifications of it, um, the, the resistant weeds that are sp- spreading across the Midwest, we're really in a position where we're using more pesticides than we did 20 years ago on acres that wouldn't have traditionally been sprayed, and we have to find a way to break that cycle. And it's a two-parter, it's farmers saying, we don't want to buy that stuff. That's an important part of it. But it's also consumers speaking up and saying, we don't want that, we don't want to eat that, we don't want to be part of that test um, and finding our way through it. So what does it what does it look like if we had something different? Maybe three years ago, I was on a plane with Chris Colson was on the same plane. We were uh, flying to Italy for a meeting of researchers and farmers from New England to meet with researchers and farmers from Italy. Yes, it was a junket. I enjoyed it immensely. (laughs) Um, But on the way, I was having a conversation with Brian Donahue from Brandeis University. And Brian, Brian was saying, yeah, we really can't imagine New England feeding itself. I go, well, I don't know about New England, but I'm not so worried about Maine because already we produce more calories than we consume here. So I think Brian took that as both an insult and a challenge. <laughs> uh, and for the last two years, there's been a working group of about six of us who've been you know, kind of parsing the numbers, trying to sort out what's possible, and looking at what it would look like if we produced 80% of our food in New not trying to get to 100, just saying, okay, if we tried to produce 80% of our food, what would it look like? Um, 50 years out, so we're not talking about doing this today. Yeah, tomorrow everybody's gonna buy Maine food, New England food, and it's all gonna be good. It's a long, slow process to change systems. And as we've been having this conversation, it's clear that the only way it happens is if there's a lot more agriculture in Maine. Um, we figured that we probably need another four million acres back in production in the region. But where are those acres? Two million of those acres are in Maine. And two million acres spread across the state, not touching the conservation land that's in forestry that's already been tied up. But trying to recover, you know, reclaim the best of the land that's out there, the land that has just been growing back into trees because we really haven't had anybody to farm it, we haven't had anybody to care for it, we haven't had markets for it. Those are all the things that we're gonna have to figure out and do um, because it's it's an important part of it all. And that's, ends up being all about relationships. I came in um, with Mary last night, and we um, walked into the, into the hall, and it's full of kids running around. And you think about not those kids necessarily as the next generation of farmers, the ones who are going to do it, although we all hope that some of them will be, and expect that some of them will be, but we think of them more as examples of possibilities that are in front of us. And right now, in the Journey Person Program, we're turning out about 25 new farmers each year. Um, the Apprenticeship Program has 150 to 200 people participating. There are a lot of people who don't go through either of our programs who just jump in, say we want to farm and make it happen. <coughs> And over the course of the last decade, we've added um, over 100 new farms, primarily just through the Journey Person program. That's what's gonna make a difference, is all of these connections that you're all building in these conversations, in these sessions. As we work our way forward, we try to find who's the next farmer, and what are they gonna do, and uh, you know, as we've been going through the applications the past few years, at first it was, I'm gonna grow vegetables and sell them in Portland. I'm gonna grow vegetables and sell them in Brunswick. I'm gonna grow vegetables and sell them in Portland, and on and on. And the last few years, we were starting to see diversity. I'm gonna grow ducks. I'm gonna set up to be a duck processing facility. Things that they probably wouldn't have done if we didn't have a lot of people doing the first parts of it all, sorry, I don't have your name, but there's somebody here who's custom grazing land, so he's got a home farm and taking his animals and going to other farms and custom grazing, so that he can um, have a bigger a bigger um, production base for his livestock without taking on all the capital costs <coughs> of buying all these pieces of land. I think that you, collectively, all of you here in this room, are the people who are going to make this all happen. And on one side, we have the people who are going to do farmers (laughs) markets and CSAs, and if we go backwards, 20 years ago, well, I used Moscow's first year 71, we had one farmers market in Maine, you know, the Portland farmer's market is 1780 or thereabouts it started and has run pretty much continuously since one of the oldest markets in the country. Um, made it all the way, made it through World War II. I talked to a farmer who sold there and he and his, uh, he and his siblings would load up their um, sedan and use all their ca- uh, gas coupons to come to Portland in the uh, very shady old port and pop open the trunk and they would have whole chickens from their farm. (laughs) And I was like, protein? Wow. He he said, we did very well during World War II. Um, But now we have the Wednesday markets jamming, the Saturday market, the winter market, another winter market, These markets are full, we're gonna spill over and go to the next town, so all of a sudden South Portland has a market. People are looking more broadly at how they're gonna get there. I think we have about 120 summer markets this year, and about 30 winter markets. And then there's a group of you who've been looking and going, you know I don't really wanna go to markets once, twice, three times a week. I'd like the people to come to me. So farm stands and stores, and the things that start to take us out of this Walmart world, try to start to take us to this place where all of us have our little special thing that we do that provide (laughs) us kind of a core of our income, and then we build from there outwards. And we need that badly. We need it because the economic system that involves money flowing all around the world is so tenuous, Um, we could call it um, make-believe, we believe in it so it is, Um, but when people stop believing in it, and here's where there's a tremendous cross-politics um, shared ex- experience. There are a lot of Tea Party people out there that we don't agree with on a bunch of issues, but on the idea of local economy, they are not all that far from where a lot of us are. And we need to have find ways to have those conversations and to share knowledge and <clears throat> build relationships that take us out of the high-level politics of, of Washington. I don't know how many of you have noticed that the Farm Bill failed. Um, it just got stuck and stuck and more stuck. And this spring, um, our keynoter from last year, Brian Snyder and I, um, organized a meeting in um, Baltimore of groups from around the country to talk about what is what is possible what would it look like if we didn't have a farm bill um, and we just said these are our core principles and build from our core principles and worried about the farm bill and the dollars and all of that stuff second um, we called it a call to farms. Katie Green from Lafka also went to that meeting. from Vermont was there. Were you there? There was, yes, sorry. Um, and uh, and we started trying to figure out how do we change the tone of the conversation? Because out of the $100 billion a year that goes through the farm bill right now, 60 billion of it goes for income support, SNAP, and related programs. Now we're down to 40. Um, 10 goes straight up to commodity support programs. About 10 more goes to 10 billion, not 10 million, 10 billion more goes to um, crop insurance and programs to kind of prop up the status quo commodity agriculture and all the rest goes for all the other things including a lot of good money for <coughs> conservation programs and organics and all of this. But in a in a world where all of us are cautious and maybe even skeptical of the long term viability uh, of, of that whole system, what is it we think are important? So I'm just going to throw out a couple couple pieces that we're talking about. Um, and because I think they're fundamentally what NAFCA is all about and a lot of the other groups around the country who were there. You know, what would it look like if we said one of our core values is mm-hmm. we want the water leaving our farm to be as clean as the water that landed on our farm. Or cleaner. So we want farmers Serve, you know, we want farms to serve as filters, as as water purifying systems at the same time that we're producing. And we know that's possible because we know the best farms do that. We all have well-managed woodlots. So so many farms rely on their woodlot the as the bank of last resort. Things are falling apart. Well, get somebody in and cut the woodlot and don't look too hard and 10 years from now it'll be coming back again, at least in our region. Um, High quality food for everybody. So what's it look like if we actually have this goal? And I was talking to Nate Drummond for a minute in the breakfast line, but Nate this year grew a, a big bed of carrots for the local food bank and had a group of volunteers in the food bank come and harvest and wash and put them away. So maybe we're not in a position where we can write a check for a lot of money, but we're in a position where we can help a lot of people by being very thoughtful and careful about what it is we're doing. On a personal note, we've been big organic supporters for decades. 30 years longer, and I'm still you know, critically ill. Um, so what we eat isn't sufficient in a world that's polluted. So farmers also have to be vocal about the need for clean air, for clean water, for getting toxics out of our food system in every way possible. We can't say that's somebody else's job and there's this perception out there that farmers are not environmentalists. And yet, I, you know, I know so many of you, and I know how you live your lives, and I know that's absolutely untrue, but there's a lot of um, hiding behind the farmer flag. So while we're having this small, um a call of farms gathering, the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance is using checkoff money to build a uh, a popular PR image of agriculture that, hey, whatever farmers do is good. And don't talk to farmers about changing practices unless you're a farmer. You know, whatever farmers choose to do is the right thing. And who's, who's funding it? Monsanto is funding it, Chekhov Dollars are funding it, Foreign Bureau, all the big national commodity groups. And in many ways, that's the conversation that's ahead of us, is can we build a base of support, a support network for each other, but also a broad public support for this idea that we can do better. We can, yeah, we're can. we doing the best we can with what we know but right now most of the money that's coming from the federal government is working against us um, and so we can't just say more for us we have to say this is what's important and the money part of it is not the solution the money part is just part of it and the solution is really for us to be articulating very clearly what it is we want to be doing on our farms and how we want to make it happen. And I'm going to finish with one last um, one kind of run-through of MAFTA. We have such a strong base right now I would say that our new farmer training programs are the best in the country. Thank you to Andrew and Abby and April, who I don't think is here, but also to all of you who have participated and taught and shared knowledge. But you know, we have a lot that we've learned from one another, and we need to do more of that. You know, we, we're not going to get by with 25 new journey persons each year. Eventually we need to bring in and train a lot of people, and they're not gonna all be um, people who've come to it from college, there's gonna be high school kids who just don't fit in the high school world, but really, really are good with their hands. They know that they wanna do something physical, they wanna be in the dirt, And, uh, and we need to help them find a way to do that. The financing system for agriculture and all of the infrastructure is teetering. Um, teetering partly because the farm bill is failing. Teetering even more because there's really nobody out there who wants to fund the kind of agriculture that we're doing. So Slow Money humane has been a real powerhouse in that sense of moving ideas forward Making things happen on the ground, um, but the scale is still not sufficient. You know, I did a little s- scribble sheet one day a few years ago of you know what what do we need just to build the organic infrastructure in Maine over the next few years, and it was 20 million dollars four years ago, I think, and a few of those investments have happened. But a lot more need to happen if we're really going to be successful long term. And I think we do, and I'm getting close. Um, I think we do an extraordinary job of peer-to-peer learning, teaching one another. We need to build on that. But um, the the door is open. It's as big as all of your dreams. And, you know, if I've been reasonably successful over the last bunch of years at helping Mafka grow, it's mostly because I've been able to talk and listen to a whole lot of you and see what you're doing and share it with the next person and point you to you and you make the connections. It's one-to-one, it's many-to-many, and it's how we're going to change Maine agriculture in the future. So, thank you all. So, I I stood up also to thank all of you. But but it was an invisible really quick one.
1: Russell agreed to take a handful of questions. Uh, Anybody want to have some questions, stand up and speak loudly so we don't have to repeat them. That would be great. Who wants to bring something up, some issue? uh, Russell, don't you think that Maine should be the first
3: state to ban GMOs? Yeah, I've thought that for 20 years now. And so far, it's been hard to get the legislature to move in that direction. What's interesting is that some of the Tea Party Republicans are kind of inclined in the same direction. So we may be able to build some non-traditional coalitions around that issue. <coughs> On my things I didn't talk about is biodiversity. Spencer A. Tullin's farm this year grew some gorgeous open pollinated corn for his cattle. He didn't get it in the ground until late June and yet that corn looked better than most of the traditional that was being grown up there, GMO or not. And there's a lot to be said for living soil and good genetics. And I think one of the things we could do a better job of is telling that story. Hey, I'm doing this, it works. Come see, I'm doing this, it works. But yes, John. <laughs> so the, the question is we've got support. In, various ways from land grants and other institutions. I think that's one of the things that gave Moffka early credibility was Frank Eckert, who was dean of the College of Ag, was skeptical, did some trials, and then wasn't skeptical anymore. And that changed a whole lot of the conversation in Maine 30 years ago. Yes, we need to be articulating our values, that's what the Call the Farms meeting was all about. But I think we also need to support those people in the, in the existing institutions who are kind of inclined our way. Um, and it's easier to support if we're all saying kind of the same thing. We're, we're lucky in the sense that right now in Washington Deputy Secretary Merrigan and others are strong supporters of a lot of our work Uh, and yet I don't personally have a lot of confidence that we're going to win out in the political battles in Washington over um, funding uh, funding science from USDA whether it's going to be GMO or organic Organic laws get some, we're politically that strong now. But if we want more, we're gonna to have to be much more vocal and organized than we've been before. Because the forces, you know, the, the, the forces that think biotechnology is the answer are very strong in those circles these days. We, MoFTA, have been more inclined to think that Recycling human waste makes sense than most um, organic groups in the country. But it's really hard when you contaminate the entire waste stream, cross-contaminate it with industrial waste, with materials that are wide household use. So we have to tackle the toxics problem in our daily lives if we're really gonna be able to think about responsibly using uh um, humanure on our farms. So one thing to talk about using all the stuff from your own household. is another entirely to talk about you know, a, a waste stream that's clean enough so we all have confidence in it on a continuing basis. The, the place where I think it probably has the most relevance is when you're bringing a farm back. So if we're talking about two million acres of land coming back, you know, you need fertility to jumpstart that cycle again. And I think that might be the fair place to start the conversation, the idea that you have a, a year where there is um, human or, or biosolids applied, and then you go through your three year waiting period, but it gives you a fertility boost to start your um, start your cropping cycle, start your nitrogen cycle. I think that would be a healthy conversation for all of us to be having. How about one more, right
0: here? Um, my question is related to Glennon's. I wanted to know uh, where you think the money is going to come from to support those investments for all that infrastructure and all this additional land and connected how are investors going to be turned on to this opportunity?
3: The slow money main group is really grappling with that. And there are two two groups looking at credit unions. One for a main-only credit union that would really be up to $50,000 in operating funds as kind of the loan limit. And another one that's looking regionally and trying to figure out if it's possible for a credit union to finance real estate. I think both of those are getting onto the right track. They may not be quite there yet. My rough number is if we could get everybody in Maine to do the equivalent of $10 a year into some investment pool, whether you want to gift it, or um, gift it, or deposit it, or however you want to do it, that's enough to do the most critical projects each year. That'd be 13 to $15 million a year of, of money flowing. And if we had that, we could at least focus. Slow money Main is really focused on infrastructure as their, as their corner. Um, but there are all the other corners that need attention too. And I think the, the credit union possibility is really a powerful one it's democratic, it's cooperative, and it gives us all a way to uh, solve some of those problems. Great.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Before we get started with the rest of the day, uh, a couple of people would like to say a few words, and uh, I want to start with Paul Bokhausen, past president of the board of MoFCA and longtime certified grower. i got to add good friends. Well, I'd like to take you
4: back to uh, 1988. Um, As Eric said, MOFCA was in this uh, fourth-floor walk-up with buckets all around, and uh, I was president of the board of MOFCA. We were interviewing uh, for a new executive director. Uh, We had come down to two candidates who uh, seemed to be very well-qualified. I was uh, chairing the meeting, uh, trying to be the best chair that I could, not express an opinion, uh, but just let everybody else have their time. Uh, After a while, uh, people said, okay, enough is enough, Paul. Uh, We want to know what you think. Mm -hmm. And (coughs) So uh, I said, well, I think this Russ Libby is uh, a wonderful candidate for the job but he seemed very young. At that point, he was, uh, was an intern or a uh, research assistant assistant at the Department of Agriculture. I said, I think you know what we really need to do is let him stay there, get him involved with the board of directors of Moffica, get him involved, and I think in a few years, uh, he could make a, a wonderful executive director. So uh, we decided at that meeting to hire Nancy Ross as, a, as executive director. Russ uh, continued, I guess, for about 10 years at the Department of Agriculture, which time he got to know farmers um, of all of the different sectors of agriculture in Maine, got to really get a deep understanding of, of the, the, the farms and what was needed. He, uh, he then became vice president of, of the board, eventually president of the board, and uh, in, um, I guess it was 1996, he was, uh, we needed a new executive director, and uh, he applied and was hired. So uh, uh, and you can see what he's done since then. And, uh, but I think those, those extra years of, of him broadening his, his experience really helped to make him what he has been in the last 18 years. Thank you, Russ everything
1: you've done for us next I want to call Dave Coulson who also is past president of the MAFCA board head of certification certified grower from way back when I started and also a great friend thank
5: you Eric um, I was thinking, as Paul was, uh, kind of my history with Mofka is, is very tied up with, uh, with Russell, and, and over the years that I've been here, but then I got thinking as well, and, and I realized I should have called my dad to figure this out, but uh, we, we go back, our history goes back a little further than that, in that sometime in the late 1600s, uh, a fellow <laughs> named uh, John Libby uh, emigrated to this continent. Uh, came through, I believe it was Massachusetts, maybe Russell knows this story. Scarborough. Scarborough, there we go. (laughs) And uh, ended up uh, in Maine. And uh, the family grew from that point. And uh, um, my great-grandmother was born a Libby and grew up and lived in the Skowhegan area. Um, My grandfather, of course, she married uh, out of the Libby family. But my grandfather's first name was was Libby, uh, Libby Pulsifer. He ended up in uh, medical school in Chicago and then settled in Rochester, New York. So it's how I ended up in in New York state. But we had uh, these family ties with with Maine and kept coming back here. And when I needed to make a choice of where to go, of course at the time my sister was living in Brunswick and she convinced me to come uh, back from the work I've been doing on the West Coast, and, and look for land in Maine. Um, so actually, Russell and I are uh, distant cousins of, of some sort or, <laughs> or another. So I we'll bring that up once in a while, and he kind of nods. And don't know whether
3: he really wants to acknowledge it. <laughs> well, the surprise really is that um, you made this assumption that uh, Libby wouldn't marry Olivia. I'm not sure that's. <laughs> <laughs>
5: So fast forward, <laughs> fast forward, and uh, so I, yeah, as I said, I was living out on the West Coast and uh, um, looking at farmland out there, and my family convinced me to come back to the East, and they said, uh, if you come back and you want to come to Maine, you've got to make it back in September for the Common Ground Fair, and uh, so we finished our garden up sometime uh, in September that I was working on out in, uh, in Oregon at the time and we loaded up the truck and drove back and made it to Maine just in time for the common ground fair that was uh, I believe that was 1981 or so and uh, so we ended up finding our farm within about a year and a half of that and uh, we decided to get certified around 1985 and yeah it was one of those, 14 farms at, at the time when uh, Eric was uh, was hired and uh, hadn't really had a whole lot of other connection with, with Moffca but Eric pulled me into one of those early meetings and that was when we could fit all the certified farmers <laughs> around a small table at uh, the office in Augusta and uh, ar- from that meeting I was invited to join the Moffca board and the same time that I joined the board I think Paul you might have been president around that time and there was this other fellow about my same age that was serving on the board and uh, what I noticed with him often as we would be deliberating on things is there would be a lot of discussion and argument and uh, various points made and as usual with meetings like MOFCA we went around in circles for quite a while And at some point Russell would kind of raise his hand and, and uh, he he'd kind of sum everything up that had happened in the last hour of discussion into a, a quick kind of well this is where I think we are and this is probably how we should move ahead and usually within a few minutes we were on to the next subject <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was well put together so yeah when uh, when Russell became well when Nancy decided to leave mafga and Russell uh, submitted his application we Actually, I think we were more holding our breath to make sure that this wasn't uh, 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 something he was going to uh, uh, decide not to do. Um, We all just felt that this was the right person at the time. So fast forward to that, as as Russell mentioned, uh, Ellis spent a lot of time looking at land. We were were really uh, interested in finding our own fairgrounds. We wanted to to have a a bigger space to do demonstrations (laughs) and things on. And I remember actually sitting in the Mafka office, that, that leaky roofed office, and I think one of the things that wasn't mentioned is that we, we had uh, just a couple of uh, rooms within that office, and I don't remember the other group that shared the other half of the office. It was the main chair. Main chair, there you go and uh, they moved downstairs to get a little bit more space, and the landlord at the time wasn't paying a whole lot of attention, and we sort of just moved into those other rooms as well. And uh, the rent stayed the same, so that worked out pretty well. But I remember sitting in that office uh, on the couches, and and kind of funky furniture that we had at the time, and, and the decision was actually made to go from kind of a passive uh, looking for a fairgrounds to an active looking for a fairgrounds. And within a couple of years, we, we found the site that we're on. And I remember a bunch of us riding in uh, Matthew Strong's uh, Suburban. He had a rack on the top of it, a big box rack for traveling. And the f- uh, field that's now the Moffka Fairgrounds was a cornfield at the time that we looked at. it, And we all climbed up to Matthew's, uh, a box to, to look over the corn to be able to see what the lay of the land looked like. and uh, It was a very exciting time. And so there was a lot of sentiment over, well, do we stay at Windsor Fairgrounds for another year or two until we have things settled, or do we move right ahead? And, and there was enough uh, push to go ahead. We have this place. This is a great way to, to continue to have Mofka grow, and, and so the push was made to try and do the fair that same year, and uh, what we realized but didn't perhaps really understand is how much work that was going to be to create the buildings, uh, all the infrastructure that was needed, and a lot of that had to be hired outside of Mafka. Um, the Mafka family was just too much for us to do, but we had these livestock barns that needed to go up, and. Uh, so the call kind of went out to uh, let's let's get some volunteers on weekends, and we'll see if we can get these buildings up. And so I don't know a number of weekends. I know Russell was there pretty much every weekend of that summer. And uh, we would take we would get done with our uh, market work on Friday, and then load up our delivery van with all of our tools and drive up and and help bang uh, nails um, up there. One of, the, one of the things I <laughs> distinctly remember working with Russell is uh, as every farmer, I can't throw anything away. Um, there's a joke, uh, how many farmers does it take to change a light bulb? It takes three, one to change the light bulb and two to talk about old, how good the old one was. <laughs> uh, that, <that's laughs> pretty much most of us have, have piles of stuff around and you know, somebody says, gee, I could really use Something or other, and you say oh, I got that here somewhere. So I would show up to help with the with the, the livestock barns with buckets of bent nails. <laughs> so every time we came across a bent nail, Russell would go, "Oh, this must be one of Dave's." <laughs> so uh, kind of fast forward to there to to the actual fair, that first fair itself, and. We we were pretty comfortable with uh, the old Windsor Fairgrounds. It it really had been um, we'd been there a long time. We knew how it worked, and we knew how the parking worked. (laughs) And uh, Paul and I were uh, volunteered at various things at the Windsor Fair, and and they kind of said, "Well, you guys have done some parking. Why don't you do a little parking at the at the fair?" Boy, that first day was just crazy. I, I still run into people that say, "No, I haven't been back to the fair that
0: was first
3: year." So, so, so we had
5: this kind of panic meeting uh, after dark uh, once we had all the cars out of the parking lot yeah. and trying to figure out well, what are we gonna do tomorrow, because tomorrow was Saturday. And uh, right in the middle of the meeting, all of a sudden, somebody stuck their head in the door of the new office and yelled, fire. And we all uh, channeled out of the building, because we didn't know exactly where this was going on, but one of the transformers had blown in front of the building, and, and uh, they're usually in an oil bath, so there was a nice little explosion going on there. Well, of course, all the lights went out. And uh, I think we woke Matthew Strong up, who was kind of doing the communications at the time, and asleep upstairs and I remember uh, standing next to him as he was trying to dial on a rotary phone to get the the power company to come out and I remember him saying, yeah, I think this would be good if you came today. We're expecting 20,000 people tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And so from there, um, the fair, of course, has grown and uh, expanded in terms of its offerings and People that are involved, and uh, and it's been interesting to see a new generation of folks uh, working their way in there. And uh, I think what's been so nice for me is is to have this hand that's been involved, uh, that's steadily and, and quietly been kind of guiding a lot of this. And uh, um, so I, I just want to say, as everyone, thank you, Russell, for all the done, uh, all the good times that we.
1: Now I want to turn to our sister state. When I was a kid, I went to college in Vermont for a year, and I always wanted to live in Vermont. It never worked out. I ended up in Maine, which turned out to be great. Um, but I still have this love for Vermont, for Vermont, and I still have a love for Enid Wanacott. Enid ran certification for NOFA Vermont at the same time I ran certification for and We became good friends. Edith moved up in the world. Like Russell said, I don't like change. I just stayed where I was. But Edith became executive director of for Vermont, and I'd like her to come up and say a few words.
2: no wonder you're here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I like to, um, I'm always so proud to when I'm in Maine to be able to say that I'm the, the Russell of Vermont. <laughs> um, I've spoken to the Maine uh, Farmers Market Association f- a few times, and that's how I can introduce myself. And, um, so really, I've been cohorting with Russell for over t- 25 years. I started at NOFA as an executive director in 1987, so I've served now 25 years. And I first, um, I can't remember what I was interviewing you about, but I went and talked to Russell when he was at the agency of ag in, the, in that job as an ag economist. So, it's, I feel like we've worked together as executive directors for 25 years. Um, and you know, I've, I've learned a lot of the lessons, a lot of lessons from, from you over the years. And um, one that stuck with me, which you reminded me of, Dave, um, the, that I was telling to Paul, I'm a, I'm a person that have not returned to the Common Ground Fair since I was in the parking <laughs> traffic for <laughs> three hours on the first fair, oh <laughs> so I need to come back. Um, no, no, no. But I remember walking across the dusty fairgrounds, not even any grass had grown, and Russell's like, I wonder how, how are we gonna pay for all of this? And I, I remember you saying, you know, but in the end it's just green paper, and it's just green paper, and I've kind of asked the, Development director always kept that in the back of my mind to keep money in perspective, you know, because that's in the end of the day it is. And then, um, you have a lot of faith-based fundraising, um, as <laughs> <and> I do. <yeah. laughs> um, but the, one of the lessons that I really wanted to talk about, that I've, my assumption was a lot of people might not know, um, but of course I didn't think about the fact that Russell would speak about it today was. Um, this whole call to farms process and the lesson that I've learned that policy matters, and I think you've really um, been the leader of that voice, and really for all of the 90s, I worked um, with a lot of Mofka folks, including Russell, on the National Organic Program, and that really defined a lot of my career at NOFA was. Flying around the country, flying farmers around the country, trying to be this voice of farmers in policy making, and it really um, and really trying to keep the consumer un- associations from not uh, unduly influencing the outcome of that. To really try to keep this farmer voice and um, creating that national organic program, and you know, I really. I really burned out on that once the National Organic Program was implemented in 2002 and I pretty much stopped any uh, advocacy work since then. But you know, Russell has really continued to fight that good fight and um, I wanted to point this out because I'm not sure many members or uh, farmers are really aware of the really important role that Russell's been playing in this national law. policy voice over the years so when he first talked to me last january about taking place in this call to farms um you know he talked about the inter- inequality of funding for organic et cetera as you mentioned this morning but uh, what i wrote at the time and i often write everything you say because you're so brilliant but you said um <laughs> as a sustainable ag movement we're playing in the waiting pool in the corner and I liked that um, that we really don't have a prominent enough voice. And so when you and Brian Snyder developed this call to farms with the goal of elevating the voices of farmers in the national policy movement, um, and you invited me to that meeting, I thought this is an important opportunity for me to get back involved and cohort with Russell again. Um, and what really stuck out to me at that meeting, which again I wrote down, was you said, let's not dibble over who is certified organic and who is not. That that's the wrong conversation and only reaching 5 to 10 percent of the people. And I think that's really important to call out because I think what you've done so effectively in Maine are the development of relationships and talking to the other people that need to be with us in forwarding this movement. and um, I remember the Secretary of Ag at the time in Vermont who was staunch Republican was saying, it's so easy to, if you, all you organic farmers keep shooting each other in foot all the time, it's pretty easy to organize against you. You're so busy, you know, talking about how many blades of grass each cow will eat or who's, how much time poultry can spend outside that, um, you know, it's, and you're constantly challenging each other on lots of different points. It's really easy to organize against you. Which I always thought was really interesting and has definitely influenced me wanting to be part of bigger conversations in Vermont with influential people. Um, So what I loved about this meeting, and that Russell was able to pull together last May was really talking about, as he mentioned this morning, um, you know, what if policies were generated from a Different worldview. Which you talked about some of those ideals we came up with. But what if the worldview was that everyone, that we can feed everyone and take care of the planet? Um, and what would that look like? And how do we influence that? So I really just appreciate this much bigger and really strategic role that Russell's played in that in the, the national policy front. It's very, very respected um, in those national discussions. So I wanted to thank you for getting me back in the game, convincing me that policy matters. And um, your new position of senior policy advisor makes me really hopeful. I'm really excited that you're staying in that game. Um, when I was at the retirement party last weekend, Melissa was um, videotaping some people. Everybody uh, did some videos. And i you probably haven't seen them yet. but. I did a cheer for you on the videotape, and <laughs> since I have a pretty obnoxious reputation in Vermont to make everybody sing, I'm not going to do that. But I, I, do want everybody to stand up and give a good job cheer for Russell to celebrate your, your years at the helm of NOFA and your new policies. Are roll. So the way it goes, yes, <laughs> will <It is. laughs> Just show you how it goes. It goes. Good, good, good. Ready?
0: Thank you for tuning in to Common Ground Radio here on WERU 89.9 FM. We'll see you next month and stay tuned for more great programming.